Dear ones, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. This evening we'll continue in our series in Mark, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through uh, 21. And uh, as you're turning there, I do want to uh, say that you all made a very uh, good decision to come here tonight and not to worry about some silly game uh, taking place uh, uh, today. Uh, I do want to tell you that I was at the first Super Bowl. I was in my mom's womb, but I was there. At Super Bowl one, say, Pastor John, you're old, man. You're old. Uh, well, uh, I grew up uh, the son of a sports writer, and um, my dad uh, probably has has been at uh, thirty or forty Super Bowls over the years, and uh, it was always a big part of uh, my growing up years and my life. But uh, uh, there are wonderful uh, priorities, uh, things that change uh, in life, and. Um, what a blessing to be together tonight in God's word on the Lord's day. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Would you please stand with me? Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Here ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, our God, as we once again come to the preaching of your word, we ask, Lord, that you would help us, help us to be attentive, grant us the grace to receive the truth that is proclaimed. We pray that we would all abide in Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Lord, as he is preached, help us to see his loveliness and his truth and his power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, the reason we are walking through the Gospel of Mark is to get to know our Savior better. We want to know Christ. We want to know Christ, and we want to make Him known. What better way to get to know Christ than to walk uh, slowly as a congregation through uh, the Gospel of Mark? Now, it doesn't take a Ph.D. in history to see that influential leaders throughout history have always evoked varying degrees of love, hatred, and misunderstanding. Whether 
presidents, or prime ministers, uh, religious leaders, prolific authors, or military generals, the response to their leadership has never been monolithic. We see this same reaction of people to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Over the past few weeks, we've observed the escalating hatred of the religious leaders directed towards Christ and the increasing popularity of Jesus among the masses. And it's safe to say that both of those who love Christ and those who hate Christ possess a profound misunderstanding as to his teaching and mission. Those who love Christ and those who hate Christ both misunderstand Christ. That's what we see here in our text for this evening and all throughout the Gospels. As we consider the structure of Mark's Gospel, it's important that we view this evening's passage as another important part to the buildup of chapter 4. When Jesus teaches one of his most revealing parables concerning the various responses to his ministry. And that's something that we're going to be considering as it concerns us at the end of this message, is as we look at all the different responses to Jesus' ministry, we have to ask ourselves then, how are we responding? How am I responding to the ministry of Jesus Christ? Because, dear ones, Jesus is not just a doctrine. Jesus is not just an idea. Jesus is not just a historical figure. Jesus is the Son of God, and he came to confront humanity and to save us from our sins. And so we can't just ignore him. We must respond to him in some way. And so we see all the responses in front of us in this text and in this gospel, and we see so much misunderstanding, but we have in chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, as it concerns the structure, we have a build-up to this as we see all the different soils. There, of course, we learn that only the sovereign grace of God can make the soil of the hearts of mankind good or fertile for receiving the word of God and bearing fruit. Outside of God's grace, hearts will remain hard and unreceptive and unrepentant. After Jesus had finished this, his dispute with the Pharisees on the question of the Sabbath, which we dealt with last week, it states in verse 7, you'll notice that Christ withdrew. Christ withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Perhaps it was Christ's intention to get some fresh air, to get away from the crowds, to spend a little time uh, away from all of the busyness, but this wouldn't be the case. The first thing we see here are the disorderly crowds and unruly demons. First of all, the great crowd. This crowd, the text says in verse 7 and 8, had traveled from all over the region to see Jesus, to get to him. They were from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, which constituted Israel proper, and also Idumea beyond the Jordan, and the coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon, which made up the southeastern and northwestern borders. It's interesting to note that with the exception of Idumea, Jesus followed up with visits to all of these places in, his, uh, in the following verses. This crowd was no small crowd. Rather, in verse 7 it states, uh, and, later, and later in verse 8, that this, those who gathered were called great. This was a great crowd. It was a big crowd. It was not only big, it was disorderly. Just think of it. 
Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people with profound physical and spiritual needs, some who have traveled at a great distance, were eagerly trying to touch Jesus. Jesus, being worried that these crowds who were pressing in around him, asked the disciples to prepare a boat lest they be crushed. So just imagine the scene. All of these people, many who have traveled at some distance, are wanting to touch Jesus, to hear his teaching, to see him, to be healed by him. And so the text says that he told his disciples in verse 9 to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Have any of you been in a situation like this? where people have been crowding in or where you felt completely out of control, where you were being overwhelmed by a large group of people, some of you who have been on mission trips and perhaps made the mistake of handing out candy to a group of two or 300 children. Don't do that. Uh, we've learned from that mistake. I remember uh, in India... Uh, on one instance, I was there with an, a, a fellow teammate of mine, and uh, we had some player cards from uh, our pro team we were playing with, and we began handing out player cards to about three to 400 children. Uh, that was not smart. Uh, we literally felt like we were being crushed as they were seeking to get one, afraid they weren't going to get one. It was total mayhem. We can just imagine what it must have been like for Jesus, who is being overwhelmed by this group, wanting a piece of him, wanting to touch him, wanting to be healed by him. He was so popular in this region for his miracle-working powers. Tens of thousands of people flocked to see him and to hear him and to touch him. While this disorderly and somewhat desperate crowd pressed in upon him, Jesus noticed that there were some who were possessed by demons or unclean spirits. And they were throwing themselves down on the ground and saying, you are the son of God. Now, we know that they were demons. They were from hell. They were wicked and they were up to no good as they were at the synagogue in chapter 1, verse 24, up to no good. The question is, why were they proclaiming that Christ was the son of God if they were against him? What were their wicked intentions? Well, there are several thoughts here. We can speculate. Some commentators believe that these demons were trying to gain control over Jesus according to an ancient idea that when you prove to have full knowledge about someone, you can have mastery over them. Number two, something that Jesus didn't, just didn't want a confession of such magnitude from such a wicked source. Thirdly, it could have been that Jesus didn't want to be seen as in league or partnership with these wicked demons. Perhaps the religious leaders would hear about this and blame him for being on the side of the demons. Or, fourthly, was it that Christ did not want these demons to bring premature exposure to his full identity as the Son of God, what theologians call the messianic secret? For many times in the Gospels, we see him telling people, telling demons and telling people to be quiet and not to talk about him as the Son of God. 
Is there truth to this idea that Christ wanted to somewhat veil his messianic status until later in his ministry when it was clear to everyone what his true mission would be? That is, that he did not come to bring political revolution or to begin some worldwide healing ministry, but rather that he came to give his life as a sacrifice for many. Perhaps Christ ordered the silence of these demons for a combination of these reasons. It's difficult to say. I, for one, believe that there is a lot of merit to the idea that Christ did not want to be seen in partnership with these mocking demons due to the fact that in verse 22 of this same chapter, the Pharisees accused Christ of being possessed by the devil himself. After all, the last confession that Christ would have wanted was a mocking confession from an unclean spirit sent from the devil himself to harass Jesus and disrupt his ministry. In addition, the story that we considered a few weeks ago from chapter 1, verse 40 through 45, that is, the leper was cleansed and he was told to keep quiet, seems to give weight to the messianic secret idea so that he is not overwhelmed by the masses before he accomplishes the mission he was sent by his father to do. Whatever the case may be, we see in this passage disorderly crowds pressing in upon Jesus while at the same time unruly demons are throwing themselves down at his feet with scornful confessions of Christ's deity. This is not the unorganized, somewhat chaotic picture that typically enters our mind when we think of Jesus' ministry by the seashore. It was chaos, it was war. All hell was breaking loose. This is the life that our Savior lived. This is the life that our Savior lived. This is what he came down from heaven to endure for you and for me. We need to think about this. That love motivated and drove our Savior to come down from heaven to earth to experience these kinds of things. We're going to see later on that crowds were so great that Christ couldn't even take time to eat his dinner. Jesus was loved in this passage, but perhaps for all the wrong reasons. Jesus was hated in this passage because the demons knew that he was the one who would cause their ultimate demise. So Jesus is loved. We're not sure if it was for the right reasons. And he was hated. We certainly know that he was misunderstood. Well, the next thing we see in this action-packed gospel is we travel from the sea in verse 12 to the mountain in verse 13 where Jesus officially appoints his 12 disciples who later become the 12 apostles or the sent ones. Notice with me verses 13 through 19. Here we have the choosing of the 12 and Christ's building for the future. We learn from Luke's gospel in chapter 6 and verse 12 that Jesus spent the night before this day in prayer. He spent the entire night in prayer, and we see why, because Jesus is choosing the 12 disciples. This is an important occasion, of course. These were the men that Christ chose through whom he would continue his ministry when he would no longer be physically with them. Listen to what one commentator says, quite uh, quote, Christ appointed witnesses by means of whom, through his own work in them, 
the militant church could be gathered and guided after his own physical departure. And so uh, the question uh, is often asked, how can Jesus exercise his threefold offices of prophet, priest, and king from heaven when we are down here and he is up there? The answer is through the leadership of the church. The ministry of the church is built, as we will see in a minute, upon the, the teaching and ministry of the apostles and the prophets through the scripture that is laid down in the canon. And then, as, and then that baton is handed off. Paul handed off the baton to Timothy. And Timothy was to hand that baton off to other uh, men who were gifted and trained and ordained to the offices in the church to oversee and to shepherd the church and to preach the word of God. But what were the primary responsible responsibilities of the disciples? Notice with me in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. It says there, and he, verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Those are the three things listed here. The first thing was that they would be with Jesus, that they would be with him, to learn from the Son of God the truth that they themselves would one day preach unashamedly and under the cost of death. Sometimes people will say, you know, no one really needs to go to seminary. I mean, the disciples didn't even go to seminary. They didn't go to RTS Jerusalem. They didn't go to, to, to Westminster uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, my response is always, first of all, it's always, uh, are you kidding me? They had the Son of God as their professor for three years. Um, that is the greatest seminary uh, ever. Uh, and so... The disciples were to be with Christ during his three-year ministry. Before they were sent out as apostles, they needed to be educated and trained by Christ. Secondly, we, we notice in verse 14 that the calling on the disciples is to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. And he might send them out to preach. The disciples were to be heralders of the good news of salvation found in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. They were to preach the word, to preach the kingdom of God. This was the calling upon their lives. And as preaching has been marginalized in so many quarters of the church today, we see that it was very central in the life of the early church, even prior to Pentecost. Preaching is central in the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament and of Christ himself. And then thirdly, they were called to cast out demons, verse 15. They had authority to cast out demons. Part of their calling was to demonstrate authority over unclean spirits in the name of Jesus Christ, thus proving that Jesus had power over the devil and his demons. Now, what is interesting about this is that Jesus did not choose 10 disciples or 14 disciples or four disciples. How many disciples did he choose? He chose 12 disciples. It appears here that Christ had in mind 
the new Israel. For the coming of the kingdom would not be founded upon the 12 tribes from one ethnicity, but rather the ministry of 12 apostles, who would begin the process of gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation under the banner of the salvation and lordship of Christ. What do we know about these 12 disciples? We know from the Gospels and Acts that they were 12 men with 12 different personalities and 12 different ways of expressing themselves. It's actually quite comforting when we think about the 12 disciples as we think about uh, the, 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 uh, const- what constitutes churches. People from different backgrounds, different personalities, different passions, different ways of expressing things. Um, that's what brings spice and life in a church, I think. Uh, it's wonderful. We're all different, uh, but we're all in Christ by grace through faith, uh, which is um, such a joy. What do we know about uh, these disciples? Well, verses 16 and 17, we have listed Peter, James, and John. Uh, we learned about the calling of these guys early on in chapter 1. We know that Peter uh, is the impetuous and passionate one, the one whom Christ called the rock. Uh, he was the one, anytime questions were answered, he had his hand up first. He was the first one to say things. A lot of times what he said wasn't right. Um, you should be somewhat comforted by that, right? Uh, this is the way uh, sometimes we are. And uh, there's a, a, something wonderful about having zeal and uh, passion, but sometimes it doesn't always come out the way it should. And, but Peter does assume a kind of primary leadership role amongst the disciples in the early church. Uh, James was the first of the disciples to be martyred. And John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. They were given the nickname Boanerges, uh, Aramaic, an Aramaic term meaning sons of thunder. Uh, probably for their unbridled zeal, as in the case of Luke 9, 54 through 56, when they asked Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to consume those who were antagonistic to Christ's ministry. I think of the zeal of these guys. Uh, they're passionate, um, a little overzealous in this moment. Uh, sons of thunder. Uh, we know that these three were given special privileges, Peter, James, and John. They were part of kind of the inner sanctum, uh, Uh, They were, in a sense, part of the inner sanctum of Christ's ministry. Next, we have listed, in verse 18, Andrew, Peter's brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, the tax collector that we learned about earlier, uh, Thomas, uh, the one who doubted the veracity of Christ's resurrection, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Judas, not Iscariot, John 14, 22, Uh, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Christ. This is the disciples. These are the disciples. These men were from different backgrounds, different occupations. They had varying personalities. Some of them were related to one another. These were the men who the Son of God appointed to be his disciples and then to later send out as his apostles. This, This ragamuffin band of fishermen and tax collectors, Christ chose them. The beauty of this spiritual band of brothers was the fact that although they were in many ways diverse, they were also unified in their desire to be with Christ. 
all except, of course, Judas Iscariot, who all along the way pilfered money from the money chest and betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. If I can pause for a moment, what's extraordinary when you fast forward to the Last Supper and Jesus makes it known that someone will betray him? The disciples don't know who it is, which means that Christ loved Judas Iscariot all along the way, even as he loved the others. Judas would have had his feet washed by Christ. Christ loved him, and yet he betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Upon the ministries of these men, the church of Jesus Christ would be founded. Again, the, ministry, the church is not founded upon these men. The church is founded upon the ministry of these men, namely the faithful setting down of the Holy Scriptures and the faithful proclamation of the Word of God. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now listen, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So knowing this reality, we see what an important part of Christ's ministry it was to choose these 12 disciples or apostles. So we've followed Christ uh, to the sea. We've gone with Christ to the mountain in uh, the uh, choosing of the 12. Now we go uh, to his house, probably Peter and Andrew's house, and see what happens next. He's misunderstood by his family. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. What a day for Jesus. The crowds, he goes for a walk by the sea. The crowds overwhelm him so as almost to crush him. Possessed people are throwing themselves down and demons are crying out. Oh, it's the Son of God. They're mocking him. He later chooses his disciples. And now he comes to this. Up until this point, we have seen Christ loved by the masses and hated by the religious leaders and the demons. Here we see what is perhaps the most dramatic scene of all, namely that Christ's own family members reveal their misunderstanding and their unbelief. Perhaps they thought Jesus was going just a little too far with what he was teaching. Perhaps they were worried about his mental health because he wasn't getting adequate nourishment and rest. Maybe they had overheard the Pharisees plotting Jesus' murder and were afraid for him. It's impossible to say, but what we do know is that they thought he was out of his mind. Now, any of you that are thinking of going into ministry, I know there are some of you, you need to know this. If you go into ministry, there probably will be a point where some of your family members will think you're out of your mind, either before or during. This is often what happens. They thought Jesus was out of his mind, and of course, we have teaching from other gospels 
where Jesus says, you who are before me are my mothers and my brothers. In other words, you are my family. Well, Jesus truly is loved and hated and misunderstood in these texts. And we do get a true picture of the life and ministry of Jesus here. But a question remains. I think as we go through these narratives and we learn about Christ's life and ministry, we learn all kinds of wonderful things about him. But we have to ask ourselves the question. While all of these people were coming to Jesus, crowding him, wanting to be with him and near him, the question is, why have you come to Jesus? As we think about why all of these masses came to him, there would be all different kinds of motivations. Because we know that Many of the crowds who were worshiping him later were shouting, crucify him. People were coming to him for all kinds of reasons. Some because they thought he was the one who would deliver Israel from Roman tyranny, that he was a political revolutionary. Others were coming to him for physical blessings, healings, or, or food, Others may have just been fascinated by him. Maybe some were coming because this is what people were doing. It was like a fad. A recent article written about the Asbury revival, so-called, that happened a few months ago, and the whole nation was talking about it. And what they're discovering is the churches aren't any bigger. The zeal has sort of waned. And there really is no true evidence that there was a so-called revival. But just excitement, people coming, they're interested, they want their anxiety to go away, or they want something from God and don't even really know who God is, but they enjoy the singing and it brings a special feeling. But we have to ask ourselves as we consider this narrative, why do we come to Jesus? Why did you come here this evening? The crowds came to touch Jesus and receive a physical blessing. The demoniacs came to taunt him. His family members came to talk sense into him. And his disciples left all to follow him. Just in these few verses, we witnessed several reasons why people came to Jesus. The question is, what is our reason? What is your reason? Do you come to Christ for merely physical blessing? Do you come because that's just what your family has done for generations? Do you come simply because it's the right thing to do? Or do you come because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you believe in him? Because you're looking to him by grace through faith for forgiveness and imputed righteousness and everlasting life. This is an important point, dear ones. It's an important point for covenant children. 
Because oftentimes what can happen, our covenant children grow up, growing up hearing these wonderful promises from the, from, from the time they were an infant, they hear these wonderful promises and they never really embrace them for their own. Own them. Own these truths. Own Christ as your Lord. You see, it's only this last coming to Jesus, this coming to Jesus for salvation because he is the Savior and because you love him and because you love him more than anything else in this world. And if someone were to ask you what's the most important thing in this world to you, uh, you would not then refer to your favorite sports team or uh, to some status you want to reach in life or some financial prospect you would say the most important thing in my life is Christ. It's my relationship with God. It takes priority over all things. And I'm willing to pay the ultimate cost for that. And so, why do you come to Christ? Why did you come this evening? If it is not for that final reason that I mentioned, but for some other reason, I invite you tonight to turn from your sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you're a covenant child and you've grown up in a Christian home and you have never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. I need you. I want you to be my Savior. Do that. We don't need altar calls and special revival services to do that. We do it in the context of of worship. Secondly, remember the call of the disciples was to be with Jesus. This is a call, in a sense, to all of God's people. But what does this mean? After all, Jesus is in heaven. Well, to be with Jesus is to be with him through his word and spirit. We commune with Christ by his spirit and through his word. We get Jesus in the word. The word read, the word preached, the word received at the table and at the font, we receive Christ. We have communion with Christ through the means of word, sacraments, and prayer. And so to be with Jesus is to drink deeply of the means of grace, thereby being continually driven to and nourished by Christ himself through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, we are called to be with Jesus. It is true that Christ is always with us, but it is through the ordinary means of grace that he promises to nourish our faith and keep us abiding in him with single-minded love and devotion. Thirdly, as a devoted follower of Christ, we need to be ready to endure the hate and the misunderstanding of others, just as our Lord did, just as our Lord did. Those who are in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christ, our Savior, our Lord, was loved for all different kinds of reasons, hated for all different kinds of reasons, and certainly he was misunderstood. And we will experience these same kinds of things as we seek to be his faithful witnesses. And we should, in a sense, expect no different, but we seek to be faithful, to reach out to the lost, with humility, with compassion, 
with love in our hearts, pulsating in our chest, love for God, love for the church, love for the lost. And this is what we gain from this text. So as you come to the Lord's table this evening, come examining your heart for unrepentant sin. Come without any conditions upon what you will and will not do in your service to Christ and His church. Come knowing that through faith in Christ your sins are forgiven. Come as an unworthy servant, willing to be misunderstood and even hated for the cause of Christ. Come. Come to the table. And blessed church, may our hearts be ever increasingly emboldened to live with a robust and undaunted faith in this present evil age, totally dependent upon Christ for our salvation and drinking deeply of the means of grace that nourish us in him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for these narratives in the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, your eternal Son. And Father, we do ask that we would come to you by grace through faith, receiving and resting in Christ alone for our salvation, and that we would seek to be your witnesses. Even when we are misunderstood, even when we are hated and despised at times, we pray that we would respond with love and compassion seeking to reach out to the lost, for we are beggars and we hand bread, the bread of life, to other beggars who need Christ as do we. We pray this in Jesus' name.